Well, I don't know if you know this, but humans will avoid pain at all costs. Uh, this was never more true for me than when I was in college. Uh, I was in college and I started my degree track for IT. If you don't know what that is, it's information technology, it's a mix of computer science and computer information systems, riveting stuff, right? Uh, I unknowingly and stupidly walked into probably one of the hardest and most difficult degree paths I could have chosen uh, for myself and my intellect. Uh, and my first class that I took was programming in the language of C. Super old language, it was built like in the 60s. Uh, I had never heard of a language that sounded like it came from the alphabet. I didn't understand it. Uh, but I quickly found myself doing math equations, and not just doing math equations, I had to like create the calculator for the math equations, like it was nuts. If you're in computer science at all, you kind of know you are building stuff from the ground up, and it's not super simple. It was actually really, really difficult uh, for me. Uh, but somehow, by the grace of God, I had maintained an A in the class. Um, I don't know how, I had just barely made it by, I had a low A, and I really wanted to keep that A. Really wanted to keep my 4.0. Uh, and the last project of the semester before the final, if you did well on it, you could skip the final. And I was excited about that. The last project was probably the biggest challenge of any of it, and it was writing code to build a playable video game from the ground up. Text-based, uh, like Doom, if you ever played those games back in the day, text-based video game with a map, like craziness. It was like a big chunk of the grade, and that was what we had to do. Uh, it was pretty rough. So I had no idea where to start, but thankfully I had a lot of friends uh, in that group that I had met, and they were like, hey, let's just work on this together, let's bounce ideas off of each other. And over the course of a couple weeks, the deadline approached, my 4.0 GPA was hanging in the balance, and I didn't want to pull an all-nighter or anything like that, or cancel any of my social plans. So naturally, as to avoid the pain of that altogether, I cheated. I took the video game outline, the code outline of one of my classmates, and I just renamed it and relabeled everything, kind of like the Star Wars sequel trilogy. Just renamed it and pasted it on there. 30 minutes later, I was done. I was done, and I clipped submit, and that was it. Well, of course, later that week, I was uh, found out. Uh, I had to talk to the professor. I told him everything. and. and Thankfully, he was very gracious with me. I didn't get kicked out of school, I didn't get suspended, but I did receive a zero for the project, and I felt the immense guilt and shame and everything that came with um, the consequences of my actions. I was presented with the option of doing the right thing, building that video game, taking the time to do it, going through the pain, uh, and applying myself, or I had the option to take the easy way out and steal someone else's work, someone else's glory, and pass it off as my own to be praised for. But I built a text-based video game, and I chose the easy way out. So I tell you this. Well, because it's exactly where we are in the book of Acts. Uh, last week, uh, we heard from Cody that Paul uh, was put in a situation of having people uh, worship him or worship the true king, Jesus. And this week, we get to see him dealing with the consequences of what he chose and what will come next. Uh, so if you are here last week, you already know uh, that he chose a lot better than I did. Uh, he chose to lay down his glory, his worship, and point them uh, to Jesus. So now we're going to see how he deals uh, and how that, the consequence plays out. 
Uh, so fun fact about this area before we jump in, it's actually the area of Galatia. Paul eventually writes a letter to these churches here uh, in this area. Uh, but last week, Cody brought us to the first part of 14, uh, where the people of Lystra uh, saw Paul perform a miracle. Remember that? Uh, they assumed then that Paul and Barnabas were Hermes and Zeus, that they were these amazing gods, these great Roman gods from the past, and they began to worship them because they thought they were the mighty gods they had read and heard so much about. It's really interesting here uh, because there was a myth and a legend uh, back then that centuries earlier in that region, uh, there were two Roman gods. Two Roman gods that came down from, uh, to earth and they walked through the city as like travelers and pilgrims and uh, no one was hospitable. No one took them in, no one gave them food, no one clothed them, no one, they just ignored them. Uh, except for these two elderly people living in a poor hut on the edge of town. Uh, they welcomed the gods in, they fed them, they clothed them, so the story goes. They let them stay as long as they wanted. And then those two men, the two gods, they revealed themselves to be the gods of Jupiter and Mercury. Remember, this is just a myth. Uh, and because no one would let them in or offer them any shelter or any clothing, any food, uh, they destroyed the whole region. They sent a huge flood that destroyed the whole region except for that one house uh, of the couple that had uh, taken them in. So the legend goes. So obviously, though, the people of Lystra, of Lystra, excuse me, are not going to let that happen again. They think the gods have come down, and they're like, we are not going to let this happen again. We are going to worship you for all that you are. But, as we know last week, uh, after Paul's healing of the crippled man, they begin to worship him, believing them to be Romans, Roman gods. So just imagine for a moment, just a moment, how tempting it must have been to be treated like a god. Put yourself in Paul's shoes. Treated like a hero. Have these teenagers just, oh my gosh, it's the gods. Like they're just excited for this worship and this time. How tempting it must have been to just accept and receive that. How tempting that would have been. But let's look at how Paul reacts. Uh, we're going to back up to verse 15 here from last week. It says, men, this is Paul, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. The people of Lystra wanted to worship them and make sacrifices to them, but Paul tore clothes, denying the worship of them, and pleads, and pleads that they turn from their sin and trust in the true living God. Paul chooses to reject the temptation of their worship and points them to the one who deserves their worship. So I'm usually not a, a point giver when I teach on Wednesday nights. Students know this. Uh, but this is how we do it on Sunday morning. So I have a point for you here. Uh, so if you're writing stuff down, it's already in your notes, so you don't have to. That's pointless. Uh, but uh, the point is, when we're offended, we are quick to retaliate. When you were offended, we're quick to retaliate. Let's look at verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. So Jews came all the way from Antioch and Iconium. Some of them traveled hundreds of miles to basically try to tear down Paul's ministry, and they persuaded the crowd. Paul and Barnabas are bad news. You don't want anything to do with these guys. They are just trouble, don't, their gospel that they're preaching is hogwash, forget about them. They're like, okay, that sounds reasonable. They stone Paul then and drag him out of the city, which is really interesting. 
New Testament, most of the stonings that happen, happen outside the city, not inside. It's really interesting uh, why that happens, but you rarely see stonings inside a city. Why did it do that? Well, it's probably not a good look for your city if there's a dead guy bleeding out right in front of your king's supers. Like, oh man, they got really good produce here, but I'm going to stick to the Walmart and Iconium. A little gross here, right? These people quickly went from thoughts of love and worship and adoration for Paul and Barnabas, of thoughts of hatred and murder of them with no regard of anything else, that they would stone them right there in the city. They didn't care how it looked. They just wanted this guy gone. They stoned him to the point of thinking he was dead, dragging his body out of the city, and left him there to decay. Let's read on. Verse 20 says, But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. On the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derby. So Paul stoned, basically dead. Uh, some commentators uh, believe that Paul may have actually died here uh, and God revived him. Uh, that's, that's how bad it was. There's nobody to prove that, but some people think that, that he was actually dead here because one commentator actually puts it, uh, this is a possibility considering they thought he was dead because stoning was an effective form of execution. So they did it a lot. They knew when people were dead. Uh, but besides the point, uh, by the sheer grace of God, he regains consciousness. Paul is alive. He's not dead. Uh, like they thought. So what does he do? He goes back into the city. Paul wakes up, goes back into the city. I can just imagine the disciples like all crowded around Paul, like, oh my gosh, guys, he's waking up. Let's get him to the hospital. Uh, probably not Lystra. Where, where else can we go? And then he's just up and walking back into the city that just stoned him, that just tried to kill him. He gets up and goes back. Paul's already up and back. If this was me, after being knocked out uh, with stones, large stones, unconscious, brink of death, barely alive, somehow I miraculously wake up and I'm alive, I'm not going back in that city. I'm going completely the other way. I'm not going to do that. I know me well enough that my flesh to know that if I were to have this happen, I would pray that God would bring judgment on these people. Like Jonah, right? Jonah wanted Nineveh to die. I would have wanted God to smite them and tear them down, and I would have left. I would have left with the pride of knowing that I had suffered for the gospel. But Paul doesn't. Paul goes back. Paul goes back in. Let's keep reading. Verses 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So Paul continues to preach the gospel here. He returns to those places uh, that, despite his near-death experience in Lystra and the hatred from the Jews in Iconium and Antioch, he goes back. He goes back to those places, regardless of the dangers that exist, regardless of the physical pain he's already experienced. It's not just a potential threat at this point. Like, he has actually experienced this physical harm from these people, but he willingly and knowingly goes back to further the gospel, knowing full well that this time he could, probably, he could lose his life. Knowing full well he could lose his life. It says in verse 22 that he strengthens the souls of the disciples and encourages them to keep the faith. You've got to think these believers were probably 
assuming Paul was dead. They might have seen what happened and they, or heard about it and they assumed he was dead. They're probably terrified for their lives, quite honestly, uh, thinking that they were next. I could imagine. So how encouraging it must have been for these churches to not only hear that Paul's alive, but to know that he's alive and that he came back and is seeing them in person to the places that nearly killed him. Personally encouraging them to keep the faith. Regardless of what's happened, keep the faith. In the midst of his near brutal death, Paul says, keep the faith because he is worthy. He is worthy strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This verse can be a little tricky, uh, this section, like, because you might think, like, oh, I have to be, I have to have tribulation to enter the kingdom of God. Well, it's important to note what Paul is saying here. Uh, he's speaking to believers, not unbelievers. So he's not saying, hey, this is the way to salvation, this is the gospel. He's speaking to believers here, um, and, and he's urging them, believers of Jesus, who are already saved, to count the cost of following Christ. Are they prepared to suffer for following Jesus? Because guess what, church? Pain is coming. And if you don't believe that or think you're exempt from that, you haven't read your Bible. The Bible throughout says pain, tribulations, trials, they're coming. So Paul is saying, are you guys ready are you ready for that? Because pain is coming. Paul in Colossians 1 says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to what? Make the word of God fully known. Our next point today is rejoice in your sufferings not your comforts. To rejoice in your sufferings, not your comforts. Paul here rejoices in his sufferings for the word of God, that it may be fully known. Though I am stoned, though I am persecuted, though I am imprisoned, tortured, exiled, I press on for the cause and cross of Christ because he's worthy. When trials arrive in our lives, he wants us to celebrate, to rejoice in our sufferings, James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials in various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let the steadfastness have its full effect, so you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it all joy. Joy, my brothers, when you face trials. So you might be thinking, it's okay, so I'm supposed to be like happy like when my latte is cold. Yes. Uh, when I lose my job. Yes. Uh, when I get stopped by the eight different trains that come through Windsor. Yes, all of them. Uh, what if I, if I get cut off in traffic? Like, oh, I am so joyful right now. That was a honk of adoration for you. And the finger I gave you means that you're the best. You're number one. Yeah, you're just, you're great. So notice here that Paul is saying, uh, and James, both are saying sufferings and trials. There's S, the plural. Not just one of those things. It's when a plethora of bad things are happening, are about to happen, going to happen, will happen. He says rejoice. Rejoice. Count it all joy, my brothers. So actually, they're telling us that when all these things are happening at once, to rejoice. To be joyful. It almost, quite frankly, doesn't make sense. 
that we should rejoice in our suffering, that we should have joy, that we should uh, count it joy when we face sufferings and hardships and trials in our lives, that we should rejoice and be joyful. But let's remember that God can use pain for his purpose and for his glory. Working out. Do I have any worker-outers in here? Worker-outers? Okay, a couple of you guys. Well, you three know that when you are lifting weights, when you lift weights, your muscles don't just grow somehow. They are actually being broken down uh, and, and destroyed when you're lifting those weights so that they can be rebuilt. Right? It's being destroyed and broken down. They're screaming, and it is just the worst, right? Uh, and if you're a crazy CrossFitter like Steve in here, he's probably said this exact quote, oh, it hurts so good, right? Have you heard that? It hurts so good. Well, how, like, you're thinking, like, how? How are you enjoying this immense pain, like getting up at four in the morning, it feels great to you, and you're just, like, refreshed and ready to go. It's, it's confusing, right, that the pain would hurt so good. But they know what's coming, what's on the other side of that pain. They know that as their muscles are being broken down, as they're experiencing all that pain, those muscles will eventually be rebuilt, rebuilt even stronger than before. They're probably going to look better. You're going to look better in the mirror, and your clothes are going to fit better. They know what's on the other side. They know that through the pain, there is a purpose, and they will get there. They know what happens next. They know the end of the story. And we as believers in Jesus, we know how this ends too, right? You've heard it before. We've read the back of the book, right? We know how this ends. Jesus is king. Jesus is victor. He wins the day. Jesus on the cross was painful, but death wasn't the end for him. Death became a servant for Jesus for his purpose, for the Father's purpose on the cross. Jesus died for our sins, our shame, and he buried in the grave. And it's not just wishful thinking because he already did it. So remember that there may be seasons of darkness, but I promise you, that pain, for my purpose, and you will see the sunrise. So how are we supposed to deal with suffering and persecution? How are we supposed to deal with that? So I want you to ponder a question first. The question is, do you suffer? Do you experience persecution here? Do you suffer? Paul faced immense persecution, suffered greatly for the cross of Christ. So let's get a show of hands again. Um, how many of you would say you suffer immense persecution and suffer greatly for the cross? Hands up, right? Honestly, though, do we? Do we suffer for the cross? Do we experience this persecution that Paul's talking about? Do we truly suffer for the cross of Christ in rejoicing in it as we do? Because I'm not sure a cold cup of coffee is what suffering for Jesus looks like. Uh, what persecution for the cause of Christ is, because I know that I have a lot of comforts on this side of the world. I know that I have a lot. Oh, but Mark, this is America. Like, land of the free, we have the right to be comfortable. Don't take my freedoms away from me. Well, I think it's because of these comforts that we think someone disagreeing with our political position on Facebook is persecution. It's because of these comforts that I think giving away some of my income to my local church is suffering. And it's because of these comforts that we think persecution and suffering for Christ is wearing a mask over my face. 
And yes, some of these things are real. Some of these things are hard and can be a real struggle and difficult. But to quote my good friend Joel Sage, guess what? In America, you get to proclaim Jesus and live. Now, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty or tell you that you don't have real problems or that you aren't persecuted. You don't know what suffering looks like. There absolutely are real persecutions here, real sufferings. So I'm not trying to discount that or invalidate that. So what I, don't want you to, what I don't want you to hear is me telling you that you don't know what that is or what it feels like or that you've never dealt with it. I'm not trying to invalidate um, those feelings at all. What I am saying, and I hope that you hear this, is that there are people all across this planet that are dying and suffering for what we are doing right now in this place. We are openly singing to God that he is worthy, that, he, that we give him a thousand hallelujahs. We are reading his word with a Bible out in front, in a public school, no less. There are people across this planet that are dying for this very thing that we take for granted every day. But do I believe that there's suffering and persecution in America? Yes. Yes, I do. But I think we get persecution confused with the preferences that we cling to. Those sweet, sweet comforts that come with the rest of the world. Those sweet comforts. Paul was stoned nearly to death for proclaiming Jesus. It was one that would receive honor and power and glory and worship. Stoned for that. Stephen was actually stoned a few chapters earlier for preaching Christ and him crucified. Ashvak Masih. Didn't know that name, did you? Was given the death penalty in Pakistan just recently for being accused of blasphemy for saying that Jesus Christ the only true prophet. I wanted to read a, an excerpt from that article. Uh, it says, on June 15th, 2017, uh, a Christian bike mechanic named Ashfaq Massey from Merriam Colony in Lahore's Greentown neighborhood was accused of blasphemy after he was involved in a dispute with a Muslim customer over payment for repairing a motorbike. A local shop owner got his motorbike mended at Ashfaq's repair shop but when Ashfaq asked for payment, he refused to pay the full amount, saying that he was a poor religious devotee and that Ashfaq should honor him for that. Ashfaq replied that he only believed in Jesus, not others, and he refused to reduce the price, telling the bike owner that he also was a poor man himself and needed the money. An argument developed and a crowd gathered, and Ashfaq was accused of blasphemy for reportedly disrespecting the prophet Muhammad, by telling the motorbike owner that Christians believed Jesus was the final prophet. Police were called. They arrested Ashfaq and brought him to the police station. He sat in prison for five years, waiting for his case to be brought to the courts, as it was postponed many times. And just this month, actually on July 4th, Ashfaq Masih was convicted of his crime of blasphemy against the prophet Muhammad and sentenced to death. The judge saying at the sudden verdict, I convict the accused Ashfaq Psi that I award him the death sentence that he will be hanged by neck until his death. So here I was this week reading this, sitting in a Starbucks with my Bible wide open and being reminded that this sermon will be live-streamed publicly, will be put on a podcast, 
we sit in here in the public school, with AC, comfortable, and this man is going to be hanged for that very right. I have no fear of losing my life, of being arrested, for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now again, this isn't to minimize our problems. This isn't to minimize or put you in your place, saying that you don't know what real suffrage looks like. But it's meant to remind us that America is not all that there is. It's meant to remind us that we take for granted every day and every week that brothers and sisters are dying across the world and across the globe. It's meant to remind us that Jesus is worthy. He is worth the cost of our comforts. He is worth the cost of our country, and he is worth the cost of our lives. He is worthy. And when they had appointed elders for the church with prayer and fasting, they committed themselves to the Lord in whom they had believed. I know this isn't quite flowing with the theme uh, of this message, but it's really important to note um, Paul here as he, um, he loves the local church, and he wants to see it thrive and um, so he goes back to these places and ensures that they have proper leadership and prays for them. So we can be reminded in this, in the midst of our pain and our suffering, don't neglect the fellowship of other believers in your local church. It's important. Luke thought it was important to put in here, so we're going to talk about it. Moving on, verse 24. It says, Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. And how he had opened a door to the faith of the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. I really wonder what it must have been like for Paul going through like his thoughts as he was being stoned uh, and recounting everything God had done. Was he thinking, like, this is it? I'm being called home to the angels' chorus? Or is he remembering Stephen in that moment? That he had played a part in his, his execution before he had met Jesus on Damascus? Or did he hear the words from 2 Corinthians when God says, my grace is sufficient for you? Was he thinking the words of Jesus? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But what we do know is that after he was crushed with stones, we know that he got up. He got back up, and he went back into the city. No matter what these people have done to me, I will go back, because once I was lost, and now I'm found. I was once an enemy, and now I'm called beloved. But guys, remember this grace and forgiveness is for them too. Next point is grace and forgiveness extends even to the enemies. Grace and forgiveness extends even to the enemies. Now that sounds great. Put that on a plaque. But I'm not sure we really like that very much. When we're, like, forget nearly killed, when we're even just like slightly made fun of, what do we do? We want justice. We want revenge, right? We want what was done to us to be done back to them because it's only fair. We love Righteous indignation. It's delicious. We love it. Our tendency 
as humans is to want grace of God for us. But not for them. Not for the enemies. It's for me. The grace of God's for me. We forget that Christ, we forget what Christ did for us while we were on the cross, while he was on the cross. And guys, we hear, the, we hear the gospel all the time in this church, which is awesome, it's fantastic, we love it, right? We hear the gospel, uh, but it doesn't stop at just hearing and sharing, right? Uh, it should produce in us a new activity. Uh, the gospel should prompt us, in this, especially this scenario, to go back to our enemies, to show them love, to show them grace, because we were once enemies of the cross, too. We should go back. Do you, you see it? Like such were some of you that we were lost, but now we're found. We were all enemies of the cross, but the steadfast love of Jesus sought you out. He bought you, he made you his own, and he forgave you, even while we were still sinners. While you were an enemy of the cross, he did that for you. Makes me think of Elizabeth Elliot. I'm sure you know the story. Jim Elliot, Nate Saint, and three of their friends uh, they went to an unreached people group uh, called the Aka Indians. It was a notoriously savage group uh, dating back to the 16th century that they had killed anyone who tried to contact them, anyone who showed up for hundreds and hundreds of years. But they were convinced that God was calling them to go to these people make contact with them, and share the good news of Jesus. And they actually had some initial success with their, the contact of the tribe, and they were giving them gifts, and out of nowhere, um, it seemed that they had turned on them, they ambushed them, and they speared all five of those men to death on the shore. These men had guns, but they chose not to use them. They only shot up in the air. They did not use them even though they could have defended themselves. The Aka Indians then ripped apart their airplanes, threw their bodies in the ocean, and that was it. It was over. But Elizabeth and another went back, and they took up Jim's ministry. They went back to the people that had killed their husbands, their family. They went back. And when the Akas realized that Elizabeth's husband had given his life for them to tell about the grace of God, they understood that Jesus gave his life to set them free. The very ones who murdered Jim and the rest of them turned to Jesus and repentance. Steve Saint was the son of Nate Saint. And he said, because of Jesus, I was able to love the man, the very man that killed my father, that threw the spear. Steve Saint in Minkai is his name, um, who threw the spear that killed Nate. Uh, they became best friends. Steve actually lived uh, in that tribe for many, many years, uh, and they toured around the world with Stephen Curtis Chapman in the early 2000s, telling their story about how God had mended their relationship and had allowed them to be best of friends, even though knowing. This man killed my father. He was interviewed, Steve Saint, uh, for a USA Today article. And the interviewer just couldn't understand how, like, I might be able to understand how you can forgive someone who killed your father, but to love them? That seems morbid. 
that seems impossible. And he said, well, you just don't understand the grace of God. And he later said, I think I may have misled him that I said that this was the man that killed my father. Because it wasn't. Because the Bible says that he's a new creation in Christ. He is no longer that man that killed my father. He is now a new creation in Christ, and I will see him again one day. I can only imagine, as Minkai, just a couple years ago, left this earth, as Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, and those other three men welcomed him into the gates of heaven with open arms. How powerful that is. The gospel reconciles us with our enemies. He takes us from enemies to friends to brothers. The gospel reconciles us. I think of Corey Ten Boom. Her family was helping Jews in World War II. They were discovered and they were sent to concentration camps. Corey watched as her sister's health withered away and eventually died in that concentration camp. She eventually made it out. And a few years later, she wrote about giving a talk in Munich, Germany. Munich, Germany, after World War II. Shortly after the war was over. I'm going to read this and then we'll close. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. Solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. The German people wondering if God could truly forgive them. And that's when I saw him. Working his way forward against the others, instantly I recognized him. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. I came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp, sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. The place was Ravensbrook. The man walking toward me was the guard. I remembered him. His, faith in the, his face in the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood froze. Now he was in front of me. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. He extended his hand. I didn't take it. I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among the thousands of women? You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he said. I was a guard there. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I've done. Will you? Forgive me. And he extended his hand again. And as I stood there, I whose sins had again and again been forgiven, I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he just erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I'd ever had to do. I had to do it. I knew that. 
I knew it was not only a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, this is really interesting, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. But as I stood there, coldness clutched my heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand, but you must supply the feeling. And so woodenly and mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out before me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and a healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Even then, I realized it was not my love. I tried and I didn't have the power, but it was the Holy Spirit of God in me. Recorded in Romans 5, 5, the love of God has been shed abroad in the hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. The gospel reconciles us together. It compels us to go back to our enemies and extend the same love and grace that we have received because we were once enemies too. The enemies that hate us, that have killed our friends and our family, that want to see us destroyed and disappeared from this earth, we go back. There's no better example of this than when Jesus did that for us. We were lost, enemies of God. He loved us. We hated him, we rejected him, Yet he loved us and sent his son into the world as a baby. And Jesus lived a perfect life that we couldn't. And even if we could, we wouldn't have. Though he did nothing wrong and we were the guilty ones, he took our place on our punishment on a cross. He died taking on our sin, though we deserved nothing from him. He rose again, defeating sin, death, and the grave. And he reconciled us to himself so that we could be free and live a life of knowing and being known by the one true God of all the earth and heaven. And while we were still enemies of him, while we were still sinners, he came for us and he died for me and he died for you. And he died for the enemies of the cross, all of them. And so I encourage you today, church, as I am also convicted by this, that we remember that we were enemies. We were lost, but now we're found. And it would be really weird if we didn't then go and share that same love, grace, and forgiveness with the other enemies of the cross in our lives. This is the Jesus that we serve. This is the Jesus that we sing to. I beg you to know him today. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. God, for this time of, of hearing your word. God, this time of, of singing songs to you. God, I pray that we would do that with a full heart. God, I pray that we would be convicted today for what it is that you have for us. 
God, we were enemies of the cross. We were lost, broken, dead. But God, you came for us. So Lord, I pray as everyone in this room be reminded that we were once enemies, but you reconciled us to yourself and it would be weird for us to not do the same. So Lord, I pray that you would compel us through the gospel, through your truth, to go back to these places, to go back to these people that we think are less than, that we think are not worth it, that disagree with us politically, that disagree with us on who you are, God, that we would go back to them, that we would love them, that we'd show them your grace. And though you slay me, God, still I will follow. Lord, we, we praise you for your son today, for Jesus, the one who took a beating and died on a cross and didn't return the punches. God, we thank you for what you've done on the cross. We thank you for your love, your life, and your forgiveness. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.